Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. So the matchup of the year is set. And it's a rematch of 2020. It's the same teams, even. It's the red team versus the other red team. That's right. The Kansas City Chiefs are set to face off yet again against the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 58. Okay. All right. If you thought that was a wind-up to the likely battle between President Biden and Donald Trump in 2024, well, it is also that, too. And that is because, bear with me here, a segment of right-wing media is convinced that the Kansas City Chiefs qualifying for the Super Bowl this year is actually a vast left-wing conspiracy. This plot all centers around the relationship between Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey and superstar musician Taylor Swift. A relationship the right wing now believes is actually a deep state conspiracy to elect Joe Biden. I am not kidding. Taylor Swift, a government psyop? Now, it is possible that Taylor Swift, quite frankly, does not know that she is being utilized in a covert manner to swing voters. Last year, a single Instagram post led to 35,000 new voter registration. Think about this, uh, Carly, 45,000 battleground state votes decided the last election. Wow. So it does matter. There's that poll where 18 percent of the electorate says they would follow her endorsement and three out of 10 people under 35. Isn't it interesting? She just so happens to be dating Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, better known as Mr. Pfizer. Oh, who's now also going to the Super Bowl. Let's be real here. This is bread and circuses on steroids. Former presidential candidate and current Trump lackey Vivek Ramaswamy described the conspiracy this way. I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially propped up couple this fall. Okay. now, first of all, the Kansas City Chiefs have made it to three of the last four Super Bowls. So the fact that they made it again this year is not only not a conspiracy, it is not even surprising. Even to people who only watch football once a year, like <clears throat> me. But beyond that, the idea that the U.S. government tricked Taylor Swift into getting political with a deep state psyop that idea ignores the actual verifiable reason Taylor Swift decided to go public with her politics in the first place. Here she is in the documentary Miss Americana talking about why she decided to make her first ever political statement in more than a decade of fame. These aren't your dad's celebrities and these aren't your dad's Republicans. Well, imagine if we came to you and said, hey, we've got this idea that we could halve the number of people that come to you next to it. And the other thing, just from a security so you standpoint, think Taylor Swift comes out against Trump. I don't care if they write that. That was Taylor Swift in 2018. Right after that scene, Taylor Swift endorsed the Democratic competitor to Republican Marsha Blackburn in the Tennessee Senate race. Clearly, Ms. Swift knew that she could lose fans over that decision. But this 
wasn't about popularity and it wasn't because the Democratic deep state spiked her coffee. Taylor Swift got political because it seems she actually cared about the issues. Here she is talking about why she couldn't support Marsha Blackburn in that Senate race. It really is a big deal. She votes against against fair pay for women. She votes against the reauthorization of the of the Violence Against Women Act, which is just basically protecting us from domestic abuse and stalking, stalking. She votes. She thinks that that if you're a gay couple or even if you look like a gay couple, you should be allowed to be kicked out of a restaurant. It's really basic human rights and it's right and wrong at this point. And I can't see another commercial and see her disguising these policies behind the words Tennessee Christian values. Those aren't Tennessee Christian values. I live in Tennessee. I am Christian. That's not what we stand for. So that is why Taylor Swift waded into politics. And that is why in 2020, she endorsed Joe Biden for president. And as it turns out, getting political does not seem to have hurt Taylor Swift. In the years since she endorsed Biden in 2020, Taylor Swift has gone on what is arguably one of the most successful tours ever. All around the globe, she is selling out the biggest venues imaginable. Her concerts are so popular that the Federal Reserve says her tour literally boosted the national economy. So why can't the right believe that Taylor Swift is just naturally popular and naturally believes the things she believes? Why can't the right believe that the Kansas City Chiefs got to the Super Bowl because they're just really good at football? Why can't they believe that two popular foxy celebrities might actually just want to date each other? Well, usually when someone comes up with a conspiracy theory, it's because they don't want to believe the truth. In this case, I think Republicans and the Trump team in particular don't want to believe how grossly unpopular their policies are. And instead of changing their unpopular policies, they are doubling down on them. We see in poll after poll that upwards of 60% of Americans support the right to an abortion. Abortion access is incredibly popular. And yet, new reporting out of Politico today shows that right-wing organizations are already drafting executive orders for Trump to sign on day one, if he is reelected, orders that would outlaw the most common form of medication abortion and bar Americans from being able to get abortion medications in the mail. While 57% of Americans say they would not vote for Donald Trump if he was convicted of a felony, Rolling Stone is out with new reporting this week that Donald Trump is plotting a way to give presidents legal immunity for life, assuming he is reelected. The list goes on. While the majority of Americans support the Affordable Care Act, Trump says he wants to repeal it. While the majority of Americans didn't support Trump's 2017 corporate tax cuts, Trump says he wants to pass a new round of them if he is reelected. Republicans don't want to own up to the reality that their ideas are hugely unpopular and that what they are doing right now, today, is making their party more and more unpopular every day. So rather than accept the reality, the right has created its own reality. And in doing so, the right is kind of telling on itself. Because this isn't just a standalone conspiracy theory here. This is part of the big lie. Trump allies are laying the groundwork to claim that if they lose, if Trump loses, it's not because his party dug itself into a hole by pushing unpopular policies. It's because Taylor Swift is a deep state asset. It's all rigged. 
in ways you can't imagine. It's because the famously liberal Pentagon is rigging the famously liberal NFL. It's Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelans flipping the votes. It's Italian satellites hacking the vote. Come on. To paraphrase Taylor Swift here, I'm sorry, Republicans, but you're the problem. It's you. Joining me now is New York Times opinion columnist and MSNBC political analyst Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, there's so much to talk about here. First of all, I'm like, you know, I'm not a professor of sociology or American culture, but it seems to me that when you're fighting the NFL and Taylor Swift, you're losing. But I think this is part of just the Republican Party and the conservative movements as they've taken this apocalyptic turn, as they believe that America's in desperate decline and that they are losing purchase over, you know, kind of American institutions. They've turned against all sorts of institutions that they once revered. You know, you hear them talking about the military being weak and woke. They want to dismantle the FBI. This isn't the first time they've turned on the NFL, right? They turned on the NFL during the George Floyd protests. They were already angry with Travis Kelsey for taking the fight for um, making for advertising the Pfizer vaccine. And so I think that when they there's two things going on here. On the one hand, they, you know, just sort of have this oppositional defiant disorder to anything that is popular outside of their own weird milieu. But then there's also I think that because Taylor Swift and um, Travis Kelsey sort of exemplify the type of American couple that they think should be conservative should be theirs. That should be theirs. The fact that they're not the fact that people like that. I mean, we don't know what Travis Kelsey's politics are, but I can't imagine that any of this has endeared him, has exactly. endeared the Republican Party to him. But like, you know, the fact that kind of people like this want nothing to do with them is such a feels like such a slap in the face. I mean, maybe it's the inverse of how we felt when Kanye West decided that he liked Hitler. Well, I mean, but okay, Kanye West and his artistry aside, and I know there are a lot of yay fans in the world, we're talking about a right wing that's forsaking Bud Light, Delta Airlines, the Super Bowl, the <laughs> NFL. You know, I mean, it, not only is it bad politics, it, I think, has a structural effect on the party, right? Like, the, sm the smaller you make the Republican sort of cohort, the larger you right. make the Democratic tent. But I think it's it's bad politics, but it's good media strategy. And that's sort of the that's what's driving the bus these days in the Republican Party. Right. The Republic, I'm not hardly the first person to suggest that the Republican Party now is driven by these media personalities whose interests is obviously not in policy. It's not in, you know, in some cases, it's not even really in winning elections. It's it's in clout. And by going after Taylor Swift, they drive a lot of clicks. We're here talking about it. Everyone's talking about it. Mm -hmm. And they even sort of borrow in a dark way some of her refracted glory because now they've inserted the words Taylor Swift. Right. They've inserted themselves into the Taylor Swift narrative. But I do wonder, I mean, it's not just it's not just about sort of this this narrative being clickbait, right? It's also, I mean, it it speaks to a larger central truth of Republican politics is they don't, it's as if they don't understand why women and young women are like <laughs> fleeing from the party. As they, you know, as they as they harass effectively Taylor Swift and at the same time, quite substantively, are making plans to outlaw mifepristone mm -hmm. and, 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 and effectively curtail the reproductive freedom of women all over the country. Right. Well, I think Taylor Swift in a lot of ways, you know, exemplifies this why they're so angry at women. Right. You have this person who 
has this kind of very wholesome-seeming background, starts out, you know, as a Christian from Tennessee, as she said, starts out as a country music star. And then as she matures, as she, you know, kind of learns things for herself, develops the same sorts of political ideas that a lot of young women develop when they're confronted with the various, you know, restrictions of patriarchy and even writes this song, you know, if I were a man or the, the man about kind of all of, you know, all of the double standards that she's faced. And, and, you know, and kind of, and so they see her as they, even before all this, they've seen her as this, um, kind of like Pied Piper to young women, even though her songs, you know, she sings mostly about romance and kind of conventional heterosexual relationships. They still, the fact that she's, single and kind of unapologetic or was single, you know, the fact that she's unmarried, the fact that she is the person in this relationship with the bigger career, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever some football fans seem to think, enrages them because she is a symbol of kind of to them, you know, um, neurotic women who refuse to conform to traditional world. I mean, I, I agree with you that I think the economic sort of independence is one thing, but I, I do think your sort of first point about how she represents a betrayal. Mm-hmm. She's dating the football star. She's dating the, the, the tight end. Is that right? Control room. The tight end <laughs> of the Kansas City Chiefs are going to the su- Super Bowl. I mean, this, this is red state America. And she is denying them that win by being unabashedly progressive or democratic or whatever you want to call it. And that to them is uh, must be destroyed. I mean, I, I do, I, I got to ask you because I was listening to Ezra Klein's podcast and he had Simon Rosenberg on and they were talking a lot about what the Democratic Party has become and what the Republican Party has become. And, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, the Democratic Party is an anti-MAGA coalition mm-hmm. and it is a fiercely uniting proposition for Democrats. And I think it's durable in a way that the cult of personality around Donald Trump falls apart when when Donald Trump is gone. When you think about it this way, and I think for everybody who's like worried about what happens in 2024 and beyond, what has been built here by both Republicans and and Democrats is a coalition, a broad coalition focused on policy, not on one particular person that is incredibly incensed and engaged with what the Republican Party has become. I mean, I hope so. Like, I'm, I count me as someone who's worried, who's plenty worried about 2024. But I also do think it's true that in as much as kind of the Democrats can become the party of quote unquote normal people. Yeah. <laughs> um, people who like football, airlines, but, but beer, beer, Taylor Swift. I mean, it's like that's all people, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, mostly. Right. That's all. You know, I, I, there was some conservative influencer who said, you know, we have Ted Nugent and um, Kid Rock. And I think that says it all. I mean, uh, yeah. Scott Baio. You're missing <laughs> Scott Baio. When you are now, when you forsake Disney, Bud Light, Taylor Swift, football, Delta Airlines, and you're resting on Scott Baio, Ted Nugent, Kid Rock shooting up a case of Bud Light. Bud, Bud Light I mean, I think that is... Uh, well, it's a sign of the times. Michelle. <laughs> Thank you for joining Thank me you. tonight, Michelle Goldberg. We have lots to get to this evening, including President Biden's vow of retaliation and what exactly that means. <clears throat> and Donald Trump's financial fate. It is in the hands of a judge in New York as new information emerges about the Trump organization's messy financial records. We'll have more on that just ahead. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I don't need the money. You probably see the cash. We have a lot of cash, I believe. We have... Uh substantially in excess of 400 million cash. $400 million. That is how much available cash Donald Trump told New York prosecutors his business had as of last spring. Now, there is no way to verify that figure, and there is no particular reason we should believe Mr. Trump. But one thing we do know is that he may need at least that much money and possibly even more to pay for the verdicts he is facing in multiple courtrooms. Donald Trump is now on the hook for $83.3 million, which a jury ordered him to pay writer E. Jean Carroll for defaming her. And at any moment, we could get a judgment in Trump's civil fraud trial, where the New York attorney general is asking for him to be fined $370 million. The judge in that case, Judge Goron, has already found that Trump committed fraud and has even suggested he may force Trump to liquidate his businesses as part of his ultimate verdict. As we await that judgment, we are learning more about Mr. Trump's questionable business practices. An outside monitor appointed by Judge Ngoron, her name is Barbara Jones, has just found several issues with Trump's business practices, including missing disclosures, math errors, and questions about a $48 million loan between Mr. Trump and one of his companies. And they are issues that that outside monitor says may reflect a lack of adequate internal controls. Joining me now is Devlin Barrett, Justice Department reporter and co-author of the Trump Trials newsletter. It is indispensable over at The Washington Post. Also with me is former federal prosecutor Christy Greenberg. Christy, The New York Times reports on this Barbara Jones finding about what is it? Questionable business practices, accounting practices, adequate internal controls. Don't listen to me. Um, and they say this is precisely the kind of data point that Judge Angoran may sort of fixate on, if you will to really call for Trump to be fined a sizable amount of money. Do you think that that is accurate uh, analysis? So I think it will go not necessarily towards the fine amount. I think it will go towards the question of whether this lifetime ban, this corporate death penalty gets imposed. Because one of the things the court is looking at is what is the likelihood of a future violation of this company and to whether or not there should be a lifetime ban of Trump from ever engaging in real estate again. And so here, Judge you know, Judge Jones, now the independent monitor, is saying, Actually, you don't have a compliance department. You never did an internal investigation when there was fraud. You had a CFO who pled to fraud, a controller who said he aided and abetted a fraud. You didn't fire them. Instead, you gave them handsome severance packages to not cooperate with law enforcement. And then 
I'm looking and I'm finding all of these errors, all of these disclosures that are incomplete or inconsistent. And you don't have a framework where I can feel confident as the monitor that that you're not going to continue to do this if I don't have my oversight. And that seems like a very logical conclusion, given the fact that they haven't fixed anything about how their organization is set up and what these inter- internal controls are. Right. If you've con- if you, you if you have deemed that the Trump organization has committed fraud and then in current in the current day is still sort of practicing fast and loose accounting schemes, then potentially you say it's time for you to hang up your shingle and go home. But um, Devlin, the AP has a report, a really interesting report on how unusual it would be for a judge to order something like that in this case, given the fact that um, there is not a showing of obvious victims and major losses. I'll read the excerpt. An AP analysis of nearly 70 years of civil cases under the law showed that such a penalty has only been imposed a dozen previous times. And Trump's case stands apart in a significant way. It's the only big business found that was threatened with a shutdown without a showing of, again, obvious victims and major losses. This is sort of the argument that Trump's lawyers have been making to the court, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it speaks to, I think, a a basic disconnect between what the court system, including the independent monitor, Barbara Jones, is, is drawing attention to and the way that the Trump organization has worked for decades. And that is, it is a, the Trump organization is in some ways a multi-million dollar organization that operates like a mom and pop grocery store. And a lot of what the, the independent monitor, Barbara Jones, a former federal judge, I might add, is flagging is the fact that like, this is not a large company that behaves like a large company. This is a large company that behaves like a family small business and she is finding what she thinks are problems in their accounting. And what the Trump organization is saying in reply is, this is nonsense, you're, you're quibbling, you're, you're, you're focusing on like petty things, and, it, it, and it's unfair. And that is the basic conflict in this issue. Yeah, I mean, they've also said like, oh, Barbara Jones is trying to basically make a case for us to continue using her services by saying that, you know... <laughs> We're not doing a good job. Which makes no sense. Just taking a step back, Trump recommended Barbara Jones to be the independent She was agreed upon by both parties. She was agreed upon by both parties. She was a former federal judge. She's not seeking to enrich herself here. I think in the papers, one of Trump's lawyers said she was like Javert from Les Mis and that, you know, this obsessive police officer who's seeking to go after Valjean. It's like, Donald Trump's not Valjean. Valjean stole a loaf of bread. He is engaged in persistent fraud that's found by the judge. And so this idea of trying to malign Judge Jones, I mean, that is not going to work. She's independent. She's not on either side. She's calling it like she sees it. Um, you know, Devlin, I, I do think when we talk about, I mean, the, 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 the penalty here, I mean, there's the $370 million, but then the, the, the ending of the Trump business in New York would be a devastating blow to Donald Trump's ego and potentially his pocketbook. This is not the only hit he's taking. There is more reporting that, um, from the Times that he has spent $50 million in donor money on legal bills. And I just wonder, I know you're reporting on a lot of these trials, like given, first of all, how prolonged this calendar is getting, how sustainable you think this is from a sort of inflow outflow perspective? Well, so I think it's really important point because I think what you're seeing is we are right now in the moment where the the legal costs of being Donald Trump are eclipsing his political operation. 
up till now, what we've seen is his political operation funding his legal bills, up, including some of the penalties that are associated with the E. Jean Carroll case. But when you see the $83 million verdict, when you see the, the expected Engeron decision, which is likely to be a lot of money as well, what you're seeing is there is no way his political operation can absorb the costs of those things. So right now, what we're seeing is very important because it's the moment when the costs of his pol political career is impacting his business life, and he cares a great deal about the money. And so what we're seeing, I, I hope people understand, is that this is now starting to bite in a way that, that his political career has never bit in his business life before. Yeah, I mean, the, and, and by the way, the thing that I think he feels the most is the pain in his wallet, right? More than, I don't know, the, the moral indignities of that he visits upon the American public. Um, um, Kristen, when we talk about, you know, the, the road ahead and where the lawyers are going to be needed the most, the federal election interference case against Donald Trump has been stayed since December 13th, which is a long time. I think the hearing was on January 9th. But still, this was some people thought this was kind of a pro forma exercise. Like this is a ridiculous claim. It'll be over soon. We still haven't gotten the decision. Can you talk a little bit about um, whether there might be a strategy in all of this? And, you know, it seems almost certain that this isn't going to happen in March. And with every day that goes by, it seems like it's not going to happen in April either. I think we're looking at late spring, maybe even early What's summer. What's spring to you? Is that like when the clocks go forward or when we're wearing shorts in New York? <laughs> I, I think it's when, at that point, hopefully this will have been before the Supreme Court and we'll get the Supreme Court decision so that later in the spring we are having this trial. Mm -hmm. um, that That is my hope. I, I think, look, I, I didn't think it would be so quick. I thought really we would be getting a decision from the D.C. Court of Appeals sometime this month. Tomorrow is the end of the month. So we are getting getting close to this point where you are hoping that they're going to come out with a decision soon. Uh, they it, Look, it's a decision they know is going to be scrutinized. It's a decision in a matter of first impression, and they want to get it right. And you probably are looking at three judges who are trying to figure out how to be unanimous. So hopefully the big thing, I think, is not necessarily what the ruling will be. I do think that that part is easy. Maybe the reasoning is different about how they get there. But ultimately, the decision will be at the end, are are they going to make sure that the normal rules about 45 days to go en banc before the entire Court of Appeals and 90 days to go before the Supreme Court, are they going to stay those in their decision? Are they going to short circuit this so that they'll say our decision is on hold? You have X amount of time, a week, two weeks to be able to petition to the Supreme Court or petition for a full uh, Court of Appeals. If they do that, and I expect and hope that they will do that, then we should be back on track for this thing to be in a trial mode by the late spring. V very lawyerly that you're not answering my question about spring. <laughs> is, is that spring forward or shorts in New York? I'll give it to you tonight, Christy. <laughs> but as time goes on, my patience will be tested. Um, Devin Barrett from The Washington Post. Christy Greenberg, thank you for your time tonight, guys. Still ahead tonight, recent polling has suggested that Biden's support, President Biden's support within the voting bloc that helped send him to the White House, that that support might be waning. We are going to talk to one of his leading surrogates about the plan to fix that. But first, President Biden wants to avoid a wider war in the Middle East. But will Republicans let him? We are going to talk to Peter Baker about that coming up next.
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Today, President Biden told reporters that he has decided how the United States will respond to the drone attack that killed three American soldiers in Jordan over the weekend. The first U.S. personnel deaths in the region since the Israel-Hamas war began in October. Yes. For context, there are thousands of American troops throughout this region. Dating back to Middle Eastern conflicts the United States has been engaged in for decades. At least 8,000 troops are deployed to Qatar. Close to 3,000 are in Jordan, 2,500 are in Iraq, and 900 are in Syria. And since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas, some of those troops have been targeted more than 160 times. While President Biden has clearly stated that there will be retaliation, the White House is clearly concerned about inflaming a volatile situation. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. That's not what I'm looking for. Republicans, on the other hand, do not apparently share these concerns. On Sunday, Senator Tom Cotton said that anything less than devastating military retaliation will confirm Joe Biden as a coward unworthy of being commander in chief. Joining me now is Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. Peter, thanks for being here tonight. Um, shortly before we got on to air, uh, President, former President Trump released a statement. I'll just read the, the top of it for you. From the day Joe Biden surrendered American dignity in Afghanistan, the world has gone to hell because everyone knows that the occupant of this White, White House is weak, incompetent and corrupt. There's more there, but um, I'll urge people to go onto the Internet if they would like more. Um Peter, can you talk a little bit about how much, given the fact that you chronicle this administration so, so avidly, what is the shadow, how does the, the shadow of Afghanistan loom over the decision that President Biden is going to have or has apparently made today? Well, it does loom over. Of course, it's the biggest, uh, most important foreign policy decision he made in his first year in office to withdraw from Afghanistan. It's worth pointing out that what he was doing was executing an agreement that President Trump himself had negotiated with the Taliban to withdraw from Afghanistan. Now, President Biden's critics would say, well, he executed it badly, and then maybe it would have gone better if President Trump had been there. But basically, President Biden was doing what President Trump had already agreed to do, which is to get out. 
And in doing so, of course, you know, he said, I want to stop these uh, overseas wars, the forever wars that we've been in in the 20 some years since 9-11. But of course, what we've seen is, you know, how hard it is to stay out of them. And what the last three months with after the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel have shown is that American troops around the region have been repeatedly targeted repeatedly fired at. And the only reason that they haven't actually been killed up until now is because the air defenses have been pretty good. American air defenses actually are pretty good. And the, and the other guy's shots are not very good. And that's that's been to everybody's advantage. But obviously, in this particular case, it didn't. And the president has looked at this and says a red line has been crossed. American lives have now been taken. And he has to respond. And so I think that, you know, he's looking for that Goldilocks solution. That's how an analyst put it to me was something that would be tough enough to send some real deterrent message to Iran and his proxies, but not so hard that it triggers that wider war you just heard him say he doesn't want. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some foreign policy analysts who would say, you know, the U.S. is already engaged in a wider regional conflict, both from the U.S. support of of Israel to what is being fought out with the Houthis. Um, I, I guess I wonder if the Given the ag- sort of aggressive stance as it comes to, in particular, the Houthis and the, the sort of embrace between the U.S. and Israel, does do, do you get the sense that this White House fully grasps, at least externally, the way the U.S. is perceived by regional Arab partners in all of this in terms of its engagement already predating the deaths of these these uh, U.S. service personnel? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're realistic about this region. This region has never been an easy place for America to operate. Every time uh, a president comes along and says, I want to focus on Asia, for instance, I want to pivot to Asia. And we heard that now for three administrations, the Middle East sucks the United States back in because, in fact, it is a volatile place. It is a place of unresolved conflicts. And it is a place where America plays a unique role in trying to, at the very least, keep a lid on things from, uh, from getting worse. And you're right. There is sort of a regional war already going on. But it is a low level right now. It is a low level. And it can be far worse. That's the fear in the Situation Room. You have, in fact, Iran, which is not that far away from developing a nuclear weapon if it chooses to go uh, that far. You have, obviously, these multiple proxy groups with, with far more weapons than they they've used so far. Hezbollah in Lebanon, for instance, has 100,000 rockets that they could be firing at Israel. They're not right now. And that's a worry that the United States has. In fact, there's negotiations going on right now specifically to try to keep Hezbollah in Lebanon back from the border and try to keep that from blowing up into a bigger war. So you're right. It's it's no question that that this is uh, uh, this is an ugly situation, certainly nothing uh, easy about it. But the United States uh, uh, finds itself once again struggling to figure out the best way forward. Uh, and there is a debate about that, about how hard and how strong you should be between the Tom Cotton and the Joe Biden uh, points of view. Yeah. And, and of course, what it does to Joe Biden's support domestically as well in an election year. Uh, we've got to leave it there. But Peter Baker, thank you as always for your time and thoughts, my friend. Thank you. Still ahead tonight. Last week, I went to South Carolina to hear the Biden campaign's pitch to black voters firsthand ahead of that state's primary, which is coming up this weekend. We're going to do a little show and tell coming up next. On Saturday, South Carolina will hold the first official Democratic primary in the country. And President Biden and his surrogates have been fanning out in the Palmetto State to get South Carolina voters engaged. Remember that in 2020, the state catapulted Joe Biden to the top of the Democratic ticket. This time around, South Carolina's primary will be a useful bellwether of Biden's support in the black community, which polling suggests has dropped since 2020. Last week, I went down to Orangeburg, South Carolina, 
to see how one of Biden's top surrogates is making the case for re-election. Alex! Are you going to get your hair cut? Well, I'm going to see. I don't know. I how mean, if they can squeeze you in. Yeah, I know. After you. After you. Oh. Archie was my childhood barber. Now I had more hair there. <laughs> and I ain't got nothing to do why I look like that. <laughs> Part of what we are doing here is to talk about this new status that South Carolina has. I don't know if you understand this, but you are now the first in the nation. When Joe Biden decided to change this from Iowa, New Hampshire to South Carolina. He was telling you, I see you, you matter, you count. Now you think about what has happened because in 2020, we had lost all sense of hope. It was bad. We remember how bad it was. And many of us had given up all sense of hope, but it was the people here in this state who went to the polls marched to the polls and voted for Joe Biden because they needed some sense of hope. We are back here in South Carolina. We are faced with MAGA Republicans. It doesn't matter if it's Donald Trump or Nikki Haley. There's no choice between those rotten MAGA apples. We only have one choice. And folks, we got to do what we have always done. The superpower of the Republican Party is fear. They want to make you scared of everything, everything, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, who you love, how you love. They want to make you scared of everything. They believe that America's better days are behind her instead of in front of her. But we, the Democratic Party, we are a party of hope. Democratic National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison joins me next to talk more about President Biden's ground game and what the road ahead looks like for Democrats. Thank you, thank you, thank you, South Carolina! And my buddy Jim Clyburn, you brought me back! That was candidate Joe Biden the night of the 2020 South Carolina primary thanking black voters and Democratic Congressman Jim Clyburn for giving his struggling campaign a decisive win. Joe Biden went on to win 87 percent of the black vote in that 2020 general election, and he is hoping that four years later, history will repeat itself. This weekend, Congressman Clyburn joined President Biden on the stump as the president tries to shore up support from voters of color. NBC News polling in 2023 found that while black voters nationwide prefer Biden over Trump, 73 percent to 17 percent, Support for President Biden shrank to 60 percent among black voters under the age of 34. Support for Donald Trump among the same group rose to 28 percent. Joining me now is Jamie Harrison, chair of the DNC. Mr. Chairman, thank you for being here. The last time I saw you was at the barbershop and I see you have a fresh trim. It looks great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so let's first, I mean, we, we played a little bit of uh, a video from your event. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the bigger picture for Democrats, I think people often think of campaigning as these big arenas, like, you know, shouting crowds. 
that's what campaigning is. That's exactly right. It's like that hand-to-hand, person-to-person, I see you, you see me, we're here in this barbershop together. And and that's the connection that is so important. And sad to say, in 2020, despite us winning the presidency, 81 million people come out. I think Joe Biden would have had much longer coattails had we been able to do that. Yeah, because but of COVID. But COVID prevented that from happening. Republicans continued to go out there and, and communicate with folks. But Democrats, we kind of, we all retreated back into our homes and to try to protect folks. But this time around, we know that we have to be on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and Alex, what's important is to understand, and I hope people understand this, the DNC has been building for this moment since I've been DNC chair, because we knew that the next election was going to be a close one. And that's why we were. Able you to, knew that Donald Trump was going to be running again and be the nominee. We knew that he wanted to come back. Yeah, we knew that he wanted to come back. And so we knew that we had to build an infrastructure, uh, an unprecedented level of infrastructure in order to compete and win a very close election. That's how we beat back the red wave. It's because we invested historic money, uh, amount of money on the ground, building voter protection teams, uh, building uh teams on the ground in the battleground states. And we have allowed that that infrastructure to continue. Mm -hmm. And now we are just going to build on it. So once this primary process is done, it is a continuation of what we did in the midterms, what we did in 2023 and moving forward. And you see the contrast on the other side. The Republicans, the RNC is in total chaos right now. I know you've seen the articles about that. They're broke. They're fighting amongst themselves. And they're fighting Taylor Swift. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I, I do have to ask you, though. I mean, the the numbers that we keep getting when we're talking about communities of color, mm-hmm. black voters in especially, I mean, we're critical to Joe Biden's success in 2020. There seems to be a real generational divide. I was at that barbershop. Mm-hmm. You had an engaged constituency, but they were almost exclusively older black voters. Do you see a problem here with the way this campaign is reaching out to or resonating with young black voters. I think, you know, this is something that in politics, and I think you see it in religion as well, is understanding that young people are getting their information in a different way. Yeah. That young people are processing their support in a different way. They are not so much tied to institutions, but they're more aligned with what their values are. Yeah. And so that is forcing the political parties to begin to change the way that they reach out to those young folks. And so the Biden campaign understands that. That's why the $25 million at the end of last quarter to begin to have those conversations on social media, in the mediums in which young people are. Do you think it's just the medium or do you think that there's a problem with the message? And I'll ask you specifically about the president's support of Israel and the war in Gaza, which anecdotally and from some reporting has really hurt him in really important communities of color, whether they are Arab American, Black American, people who have been historically oppressed, who see Palestinians as oppressed as well and do not like the position this president has taken. Well, I think when you think about where the president is, you know, for him, he is putting on his head as commander in chief Mm -hmm. and he has to do what's in the best interest of our security as a a country and also uh, our partnership with with our allies. And so sometimes politically, that may not always be the most resonant thing. um, But in the end of the day, we have to understand that these elections are about contrast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president often says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. We know under Donald Trump, this is a man who from day one wants to put a Muslim ban, from day one believes that he should be a dictator, from day one uh, believes that immigrants are poisoning the blood of America. Joe Biden is a good man. 
He's a decent man. He's always going to try to do the right thing based off of his experience and the wisdom that he has and the, and the relationships that he has. And so he is also engaging with the communities that, that want different policies to say, listen, I want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. I want to talk with you. Uh, I want to figure out ways that we can work together in order to move this forward. And, and that's why I, we are so fortunate to have him as president, as opposed to someone who is just focused on uh, retribution and payback. Someone who is decidedly not going down to barbershops and talking to voters about what they care about, decidedly not talking about um, his actual policy plans in a substantive way. Uh, Jamie Harrison, it was a treat to run into you in Thank South you. Carolina. Look what we did, look what we did with Come that chance encounter. Come back to South Carolina. Anytime. Come back to my hometown of Orangeburg. Anytime. It is uh, great to see you live in the Always flesh. Always great. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That is our show for tonight. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.